Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falkenstein from Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans <sighs> and freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Yes. So this is, oh, it has been a fascinating couple of weeks. We are doing our Sydney Film Festival wrap. We will be talking about some of the big films we have seen, including leading off with Black Klansman, possibly the biggest film of the festival, and talking soon about the festival competition, things with trends, what we have thought of the festival more generally, and then going into some of the films that you may catch in cinemas, but that have screened and been prominent throughout that we caught over the final days of this year's Sydney 65th annual Sydney Film Festival. We're a little bit burnt out right now. Yes, I'm I'm exhausted. I think I've seen 45 films. I saw 43. Uh, I've seen uh I've seen 34. Okay. It's it, it, it's no shame, actually, Glenn. That's yeah, right. yeah. Uh, I, I, I feel okay. so inadequate having seen 34 films in 12 <laughs> days. Wow, this is the. I I don't know how I've done it, uh, or at least actually I can't recount. Like I can't tell people, you know. That this is the guy to do the festival. I can't tell them that. I can't, yeah, I can't it, say this is the way that you should do it. No. Um, no. In the past, the maximum I've gone to has been like 33, 35-ish. And I'll say it's a testament to the quality of this year's festival that the films haven't started blurring together and disappearing from my memory. I can remember almost all of them. Yeah. But also, actually, I think passing 40, it, it's almost like this kind of demigod divinity status that you achieve, that you're like, you know, oh my God. I now know what cinema is like. Yeah. They let you into that special corner at the hub that is like the forty plus club. That, <laughs> yeah, that I, I just I did, I did forty one one year a few years ago, but I, it lapses if you don't you know keep it up. Yeah, yeah, but it's uh, it's it, it's it's okay. It's it's I wouldn't recommend it if people actually want to have a life. I, look, but I, otherwise, if you do love movies, it's okay. Yeah, it's not really as I've spoken about before on this program the best way to appreciate some of these films because you're watching. A lot of heavy, you know, weighty thematic films. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Yes. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And films that I think are really designed to have a lot of space to be digested and thought about. But because there's no other way to see them at the cinema, we cram them into these massive, um, relentless film festival scheduling. And, uh, you know, instead of thinking about the film you've just watched, you're watching another one and then another one and then another one. So they really have to be incredibly your thing to Spe- stick in the mind. Especially with Chris and I, I think, because we did almost all of the 3R Plus movies. That's right. Oh, dear, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so uh, it's... We, we did, uh, you know, yeah. I did three four-hour films. Yeah, fantastic. Are, we, are, are, are you counting those as two? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess I could, get, no, if, could, if no, we no, did, no, then, no. I, then I'd but, be getting 50. But, wow. but it's also like, you know, a testament to my bottom for surviving yeah. that. And, you know, and the state theater yeah. chairs aren't that great especially in the mezzanine like i like it up top and in the dress circle but they're not as comfortable as you'd hope i will give props to dendy opera keys especially in the aisle section dendy is great their sort of very padded wall yeah has been a very comforting <laughs> wall for me that i could lean and doze whenever i needed to in these four-hour sessions oh god the column in the state theater i was so grateful for the uh american animal screening could just lean up against it because you are running between film and film and it is fun and there's a good environment and you see mm. such quality stuff and to the extent i think chris alluded to it earlier that even the really good stuff Goes goes to the background when the really phenomenal stuff like Leave No Trace, you'll never really hear, uh, just hits you out of nowhere. 
Yeah. Ironically, these are interchangeable titles. Leave no trace, and you were never really here because you left no trace. So you know, leave no trace could easily be called "You were never really here," and it would be just <laughs> as fitting a title, actually. And and you were never really here could be called "Leave no trace." That's <laughs> yes. that's that, that's fair. We will talk about those films as among our favorites later in the program. One more thing: when we're talking about the state theater and the endurance test of watching all these films. Look, I love the State Theatre. It's absolutely beautiful. It's great to be able to get in there at a low, low price of a Sydney Film Festival FlexiPass ticket um, and marvel at the architecture. But it's really not the best place to watch a film, especially subtitled films, because if you're in the stalls, um, it's not designed for for cinema. It's an old-style theatre that's designed for watching elevated people up on a stage. Look, if you've got a tall person in front of you, and you're watching a three-hour film, it's three hours of sort of... Just in the stalls, though. Just in the stalls. It's three hours of stretching up and around those people in order to read I, the I, subtitles I, properly. I know why Chris brought it up, because uh, I was sitting behind uh, Chris's girlfriend, uh, and her hair wore, was blocking out the subtitles. So I politely tapped her. And said, yeah. You should have come to the dress so, circle. It's so nice up Fortunately, there. all of these movies have so many walkouts that uh, we were able to you know, shift somewhere for Virat's benefit but, in not but too also, long. But also, I was very fortunate. You know, It would be really weird or awkward to tap a stranger and say, sorry, your hair is blocking out my subtitle view. I mean, that's a bit... Uh, I don't know how that would go. Yeah. Um, also, sorry, yeah, with the stalls, if you're at the back in the corner, it's terrible because like, you can't see part of the screen. It's being blocked by the mezzanine above you except you know what if you're in the stalls and I love this you can feel the train you can feel the train beneath you and it's such a nice feeling I've never noticed that yeah it's the it happens every session it's the St. James Museum line and you can hear it just hum beneath you just a reminder there's life outside of film as we've learned the past 24 hours and 40 experience as as Goddard pointed out to us cinema and trains (laughs) have always been intrinsically linked oh dear (laughs) in the image book and in Mirai which we will talk about later in the program yes indeed in Mirai as well but first we are talking about the new Spike Lee Jordan Peele produced film Black Klansman which will have a general release in August this was the first international public screening following the world premiere at Cannes. It stars David Washington as a real police detective based on the biography, so, so autobiography of the figure in the 70s, 80s, I'm not sure the exact time frame, where he was the first African-American detective in the Colorado Springs Police Department and together, according to the film, with a number of the police detectives, including a local Jewish detective played by Adam Driver, they infiltrate the KKK, pretending to be one person, and actually rise pretty up in the ranks. And it is a comedic and dramatic look at their experience and this very interesting part of history. This was probably the major ticket item of the festival. It was certainly hotly anticipated. My feelings on the film are very mixed. But before I get into that, I'm curious to hear what the panel thought about Black Klansmen. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I totally, I totally, I, I, I can sort of feel the ambivalence coming, yeah. from Chris, in an actual physical presence. But I, I totally get that. I understand why that's coming from. I mean, I'm thankful that we got a ticket because honestly, it was selling Sold out. Fast. You know, it was selling fast. Pretty much, I think, on, on the opening launch day yeah, um, when the films were announced. Which is no easy task, given that the website was barely allowing people to actually book seats for, t- for sessions at that point. No, we're supposed to say positive things about the fest. Come on. Look, I, there's no, plenty, no, no, no. plenty of positive things to say about the festival later, but next time, get the website working when you launch, guys. Okay, some truth bombs. <laughs> Talking about truth bombs, Black Klansman. Yes, <laughs> it's, uh, it was hyped and uh, very hyped, uh, and people thought it was going to be a return to form of Spike Lee. Uh, the director who did films like Do the Right Thing and, you know, basically had a lot of energy and actually 
is a very inventive director in terms of how he actually directs cinema. Yep. And there's none of that in this movie. It's a very dull directed film, as if almost he doesn't care about direction. I mean, let's leave aside the actual film for a second. It's a boringly directed yes. film. Yes. Look, there is a standout sequence early on involving a sermon being delivered by a Black Panther member, and Spike Lee edits it so that Played you by see Corey Hawkins. That's right. It's a it's a great sequence. Spike Lee edits the film so that we're seeing a montage of the different faces of people in the audience responding to him. And um, I thought like that was Queen a Queen in Bohemian Rhapsody. Style. Exactly, that like was the best director disem- scene in the movie. Disembodied black heads in the darkness, and I thought, you know, fantastic, right? Um, and then yeah. it becomes you know, a Marvel really, movie. Yeah, it, well, it the way that that shot really make it, you know it's a nice way of visualizing people engaging with ideas and you know like this guy is like a beacon in the darkness, spreading truth. It's actually a powerful sequence that I really enjoyed. But for the rest of the film, you can't see the guy who directed do the right thing or she's got to have it. It's basically anonymous in the way that it's made, and I think that style of direction uh, and the, the boringness of that reflects the way that this film has been made in, in all aspects because it's essentially um, a film lacking in any real personal identity outside of the times when the fourth wall is broken for addresses directly to the audience like the sermon from the Black Panther member. All right. Um, there's a lot to criticize about this film. I agree with the substantive criticisms that come so far, including the fact that this is a very straightforwardly directed film, which is unusual, very unusual for someone like Spike Lee and those, in, particularly, and those involved. I'm going to start with what, however, what I liked and appreciated about this film. The first half gains a lot of momentum, and it is very funny. It is certainly a novel, interesting premise. And Washington, in I think his first, one of his first major film roles, deals with it exceptionally well. Adam Driver, even to a greater extent, he is, as we said earlier, a mark of quality. And he picks projects very well. He is one of not the best things about this film. In terms of its dealing with racism, it unpacks, I think, very significantly and how you really see done in the film, how racism affects different communities and different people differently. As you referred to earlier, this predominantly deals with issues regarding members of the African-American community as reflected by David Washington's character. And he certainly does undergo a pretty serious arc in in terms of this film. However, separately to that and distinct from that, Adam Driver's character and his, in terms of his Jewish identity also comes to terms with how the KKK and other like groups see him and has a process of self-actualization through this. Having said that, he's oxen as well as defined. It pretty much comes down to three scenes, including one very good speech, which is very well carried by Driver, but he did not get the arc as significant as Washington's character, even though both forms of very significant discrimination were dealt with very seriously, though not to this in the film, though to certainly not get this driver's character certainly not get the same extent of treatment as the Washington character. I thought that the treatment of Jewish identity was more interesting than the treatment of black identity because um, the crisis that Adam Driver's character goes through is something that's fairly novel on film. Um, whereas I think a lot of the points Spike Lee is making about black identity and racism have been dealt with a lot already. It's interesting with uh, Driver's character, actually, because he doesn't care about his Jewish identity when the film opens. So it's actually an understanding of what he thinks identity is. And it's actually, you see a much more nuanced arc in that sense, whereas I think a lot of African-American identity issues have been reduced to quotable slogans like black power or, you know, all power for all the people, which is... You know, fine in a sloganeering context, but I think often doesn't have the same kind of impact when you look at what kind of issues and self self perpetuated identity issues need to be unpacked as the film moves along. So I think you're right. You're quite right. 
Adam Driver's arc was way more interesting, if only it actually had a lot more substance, which it never actually touched upon. Going into the issues with the film, we're talking a lot about these sermon sequences. Um, I think they're effective, and uh, as is the way the film ends, which is a montage of real-life news footage. That was it, the most effective yeah, incre- uh, aspect of the film. I thought those were incredibly powerful, but it made me think that maybe Spike Lee should have made this into a documentary or a video essay so that he can address the audience directly with those points, because the actual narrative is pretty boring. Um, you know, in the, the real-life case involved a lot of attempts to sabotage the KKK's, you know, um, propaganda movements without their knowledge. And I think that would be really interesting to watch the procedural of how they were able to pull that off. But instead, the movie is more interested in taking cheap shots. The KKK are basically cartoon villains. I think a more sophisticated approach approach to humor would be to have us laugh at these guys without overplaying the, you know, dumb characterization of these people like it's in a way it's strange when the film goes into harry belafonte telling us about the real life evil legacy of the kkk because at that point the film's saying hey guys this is actually really really serious and before that point you know the kkk are basically um how would you describe it yeah they're pantomime figures and actually this is interesting in that sense because my biggest issue with this movie, and uh, Glenn might agree with this or disagree, and I want to hear his thoughts, is that today or right now is not the time to depict KKK yeah, now as is cartoonish not the time. villains. Exactly. Now is the time to depict them as being really, really scary and really, really evil in the force that they can have. But um, And the film had potential to do that with the characterization of one of the KKK members who's not a cartoon villain, who um, who is racist in a low-key way, but basically, but portrays himself as just a regular, everyday American. That kind of figure, I think, is much more interesting. Um, God, what else? I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack about this film in terms of the sermons. Cheap shots. Yes, Cheap uh, shots absolutely. against Trump. Oh, and, my and God, I forgot what, that. And that's what you want to get into. <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of the sermons of this film, I appreciated, well, I sounded like the wrong word, the speech given earlier by Corey Hawkins was very powerful. Um, the one given by Harry Belafonte, which is contrasted with a speech given by uh, David the Duke, David the David Duke character, who's depicted by Topher Grace, yeah. who um, I will get into his depiction in a little bit. I didn't appreciate the later speeches. I criticized. Don't worry, he won't get foot far on foot earlier this week because it had a use of a speech to essentially progress the plot and provide exposition. I think it was a similar effect here. I found that problematic. Um, in terms of, and this was my biggest problem with the film, the quite blatant way where it is otherwise subtle in terms of how it deals with historical figures and how it tries to deal with contemporary political crises. Now, and we haven't, we haven't mentioned the very beginning of the film, for absolutely no reason, Alec Baldwin rocks up for a two-minute uh, montage talking about racism in America from the perspective of a far-right person. And it's it's Alec Baldwin winking at the camera the entire time. Ha-ha, this. this guy played Trump. It's, yeah, Do it's, you get it? Yeah, it wasn't very good at all. And I appreciate but, the political commentary they're trying to run with. However, some of the sequences, the um, reference to to making America, the great, improving let's the greatness make America. of America. Well, let's make it, let's make him he actually goes further than that he says something about making it great again and there's also endless repetitions of america first and the film keeps repeating it as if you know as um as if we haven't got it the first time or references to you know maybe there'll be a political figure who'll ride on the the wave of this racism you know but make it palatable to to everyday americans no surely that'll never happen wink 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 
Um, and the, the thing about the Alec Baldwin thing is it just plays into the criticism of the KKK members depictions that I was talking about earlier. You know, this guy, we can laugh at this guy because of the stupidity of what he believes, or we could in a more sophisticated film, instead of having this guy keep stumble over his words to create, you know, like a cheap entry point for people to laugh at him. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think the, the ending, the, uh, the montage you alluded to, it very quickly and very snappily following a very... A uh, just totally distinct ending tries to draw a more direct analogy with modern goings on, and it, you can feel Spike Lee's anger there, but yes. you can't feel that in the film preceding that. That is very distinct. I mean, that was a political statement. It wasn't a narrative as we've seen in Vince throughout the rest of the film. It is it's so not, totally yeah. distinct. That's and, exactly and, and, right. And I'm surprised. Whereas Malcolm X and some of his other films. Um, uh, achieved that quite more consistently this mm. did not yeah and one look i would challenge all the people who are saying they love this film so much and they really connected with it a, a few of whom are people i i really like and respect their opinions on say did you really actually care about you know the the girlfriend character who's the, here to be a mouthpiece and the super undeveloped relationship or did you really actually care about the artificial suspense at the end that the film generates from a ludicrous concept that are uh, designed to bring um Adam Driver and uh, uh, what was his name? <laughs> David Washington. David Washington. Ron. Right, Ron. Ron. Yeah, a ludicrous premise designed to bring themselves together. The film is so weak in terms of actual characterization and plotting, and I think the only thing people are really responding to is that there's a film in the mainstream that's calling out Trump. But also, in, 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 and this is something I have issue with, is the fact that this is a movie which is not actually a movie. It's trying to be a political statement, but it doesn't become a political statement or remain a movie and it's somewhat it's not satisfying a, as a movie. Yeah, it, it's called a no man's land. I mean, I would actually, you're right, would like to see Spike Lee's anger. I mean, this is over the top, on the nose, but I would prefer it to be specifically on the nose if it wants to be that. And it doesn't want to be that for the majority of the film. So this idea when it actually does turn into this kind of, you know, here's what I'm trying to be and becomes blatant, actually sort of jars a bit in your memory because the, most of the film, it doesn't even care about its political message and it shows this kind of full outrage for a lot of the film, which is kind of, I think, the problem with the left anyway. He plays with a lot of black exploitation imagery and I, in a kind of winky way. I don't feel like the attempts at being fun here cohere with the message we get at the end of the film at all. I th- and I think if the point of this film is get angry, um, you know, take action, then why are you playing down the threat? And can that actually work in the same film as all of these attempts to create something fun and accessible? I don't think Lee's pulled it off. I think a lot of this comes down to how the Topher, Topher Grace chooses to depict Duke. And it is interesting that he does not portray the figure as cartoonish as some of the other uh, people are depicted in the film. However, there's a crucial scene later where Duke confronts a member of the African American community, and that is where you can, you, I think, you can feel Spike's anger, and it yeah. is resonant, and you can feel the modern analogy with today mu- is much more palpable. But I, I wish didn't we had feel more of that. And that was Black Klansman. It will be in cinemas come August. In terms of the rest of the festival, we had very recently the Sydney Film Prize handed out sixty thousand dollars. Every single year, including the and the UNESCO City of Sydney Film Award, which went to Sweet Country director Warwick Thornton. However, in terms of the Sydney Film Prize, we predicted the other day whether the seen and unseen, leave no trace, one of the others would win, and it was totally wrong. It was something else (laughs) entirely. What won the Sydney Film Prize? Yeah, it was the heiresses. 
I interviewed the director, Marcello Martinesi, and he's a lovely guy. And I'm happy he won the $60,000 for that reason, because it's nice to meet nice people in films. There's too many jerks. Um, And also, I think... Three on this panel. Yeah, indeed. Um, And he could also, I think, use this money because he made this film in Paraguay where there barely is a film industry and he had to cast non-professional actors as um, for his story, which mostly involves elderly ladies, because there are barely any actors in Paraguay. So to make a movie mostly about old women, he had no choice but to cast people who'd never really acted in film before. So if there's anyone who could really take the money because of the lack of industry in his country, um, it would be an Australian filmmaker or Marcello Martinesi. Zing! Anyway. Um, and, but I'm glad Jurga didn't win. Because I'm, I'm glad Jurga didn't win. I'm glad a number didn't no, win. Look, I'm, not, the and, I'm glad The Seed and Unseen didn't win. I'm I, glad Transit didn't win. Just to be clear, well, I was well, making well, well, a well, joke well. about our lack of industry in Australia. I wasn't <laughs> saying that the Jurga shouldn't win the prize. Though apparently, because I never saw it, but apparently it shouldn't. Oh, well, we uh, yeah, I was definitely not a fan. I think the depictions no. of some of the... Uh, local issues encapsulated within that film um, were problematic. I also feel that while, yes, it is a devout aspect of the production, they got a camera in a Pakistani shopping mall and shot it with one uh, camera operator and um, the actor, Sam Smith, I think his name was, it Sam, It was uh, that showed. And I appreciate there's an aspect of productions like that where you shoot in Afghanistan to be DIY. But I certainly did not find, as much as I enjoyed the particular locales, I certainly did not find the manner of the production as engaging as it should have been, given the content they were trying to evince. So well, the, the film and the crew, which probably are in most need of this kind of push and injection of money, and also made a decent product, let's not forget that, probably won the prize, which I think is a good balance. Yeah, but on the case of The Harris's, as a film, I didn't like it that much. I know some people have really connected and loved it. But for me, it's one of those movies that makes me wonder if I'm just too stupid for it because it is, it's so subtle. I would say it's actually too subtle. Um, it's a film entirely of glances. It's about, you know, um, it's about a bunch of old women. Um, the central protagonist is um, Chela, her long-term partner, um, who she's in a lesbian relationship with, goes to prison because of debts, which are being um, called Freud. And so it's about her attempts to make money selling off um, her personal possessions as well as um, running a taxi service with the social circle she, of people she interacts with. It's about her coming to grips with her lack of love for her partner and opening up to the other possibilities in her life. But it's so, 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 so restrained. It, for me, it was a struggle to actually pay attention and care about anything that was going on. Um, I wondered if I wasn't sophisticated enough for this kind of filmmaking. No, I I feel... We've talked in terms of a few films, Tower, Bright Day, The Seen and Unseen, where subtlety cannot always work so well. I think this is Le- better than Tower or oh. um, or what was it, The Seen and Unseen. You know, it's definitely better than those ones. Yeah, I think um, Leave the Trace is certainly my highlight of the seven ones yeah. I've seen of the 12. I feel that struck a good balance. I would I, like it to one, but I appreciate that it went to someone who can very much use the money. Yeah, I think it was notably weak competition that made me wonder what exactly is the criteria for these films. Um, they say that it's about cutting-edge or something like that. Um, so I wondered if, the, you know, for that reason, they weren't including some of the more established names in filmmaking, like Jafar Panahi and Nuri Bilgeshelan, who had films at the festival that weren't included. But then they include Spike Lee, who's definitely got it made. And even uh, Miseducation of Cameron Post, which, you know, everyone was going to see. And isn't that's not restrained or cutting edge at all. It's quite on the nose. Yeah, so I, I really don't get what it was about. I thought the films were mostly 
really, really weak. And some of the worst films I saw at the festival were in the competition. And some of the best films I saw were not You Were Never Really Here. Yeah, which is fantastic. Um, Don Quixote, which uh, was flawed, but I enjoyed it for still pretty a large good. part. There was some tragic news today. Terry Gilliam lost the rights to that film. So we might have had a, just a rare opportunity to see this and um, this film at the Sydney Film Festival. So yeah. might, people might never get to see it. So it's lost in the annals of... <laughs> lost in La Mancha. Lost in La Mancha, indeed. Um, another documentary about that, indeed. But yeah, there are a lot of just drab art films in this. Like uh, One Day, you know, not that interesting. Um, what was some of the... Like, Wajib was a highlight. Wajib was fantastic. Uh, that's not my favorite. Yeah, probably Wajib, would, Leave No Trace liked, yeah. were, um, were really good. Transit, I thought, was pretty good. Everything else was forgettable and in some cases... Amateurish, you know. I thought it was like it was a selection of the most boring films of the competition. Well, um, one one you have not mentioned, however, which I really did adore was Argo, which is actually heading to Argo's my hometown pretty good, actually. of Newcastle this weekend as part of the Travelling Film Festival. Argo it's was around the country. Yeah, Argo is a pretty touching story of Inuit people, and it was one of the better ones for uh, sure. I'm glad actually Argo is getting travelling because I think a lot of people can connect to it. It can emerge as an audience favourite because it's actually a very warm and heartwarming story. And Definitely one of the better ones. One ones to see on the big screen. Uh, those two favourites from the competition: Argo and Leave No Trace. Um, in the last few minutes, in our extended podcast edition, and you can uh, download the podcast on iTunes and everywhere else, we'll be talking about several of the films we have caught and that may yet see a longer run in cinemas. Mirai, The Wild Pear Tree, Climax, Climax. The Ranger, so, The Guilty, The Danish th- So if you're listening to this on radio, seek out the podcast because we'll be talking about some better films than the ones we've discussed so far. And if you listen to us on the podcast, just keep listening. It's listening. But in the last few minutes, so we'd like to talk about something actually quite serious as regards the programming for this year's festival. Uh, we're going to give a content warning prior we'll be talking about the recurring theme of suicide within the Sydney Film Festival, and we will be later in the program be providing the number to Lifeline Australia. Now, we wouldn't normally raise this as an issue, however, it is remarkable from our perspective that um, of the films we have seen, we we tabulated it, and for each of us, one-third of the films had featured a strong, heavily strong theme of suicide. Characters either committing or considering committing suicide, and I thought this was remarkable because I know that we're dealing with serious films, dealing with the heavier themes of life, but it surely says something about the times we're living in for there to be such an influx of films focusing on this theme right now. I I really didn't know what to make of it, and it made, I think for Virat, it made getting to the end of this festival quite a struggle. Yeah, I I sort of bore the worst front of it because I think uh, my number went up to more than one-third. So I... And by the end of it, it it just felt like I was emotionally exhausted. I, I think I'd given everything. And, you know, coming out of it, every screening, it just felt like an endless kind of loop of, is is, there, is that where we're at? You know, and I wasn't able to place whether there is, you know, is where the arts community is feeling this way, whether the world yeah. is feeling this way, or young people are feeling this way. What's happening? And it just kind of made me feel very sort of sad for the world. And I I will say that I don't think this was a deliberate programming choice by the City Film Festival. It's just a recurring theme that happens to be feature in memory prominent texts and films lately. Certainly 13 Reasons Why featured very prominently on Netflix in the past year. Yeah. Um, if we just take this as the Sydney Film Festival as a survey of what's going on in film, it definitely shows people's thoughts are in a very, very dark place. Um, when Virat just alluded to, is that just the, the what, how the arts community is feeling? I definitely think that with the spread of the far right, the arts community is feeling um, that maybe their time is coming to a bit of an end. There are a lot of films, moving a bit away from suicide just for a moment, there are a lot of films about worlds 
that are shrinking and disappearing. Aga um, and the heiresses of just films in the competition were both about that. Um, Ex laborers as well. Which yeah, is, it's it, maybe is this also just how filmmakers feel about the world of cinema um, coming to an end? I mean, I, I mean, just look at arts criticism and actually film critics. I mean, the full-time film critics have been reduced to, in Sydney, uh, I think only... Just us. This is the best you can get, <laughs> no, guys. <laughs> no, no, two or three at least, the one who are doing full-time and getting paid for it. Yeah. So, interestingly, it's... Uh, it's bleak news all around. Look, the film the film festival opened with video of a zombie, to and uh, you know asking for more funding for the festival. Please donate so that you can keep this festival alive. The cinema is undead. Jokes write themselves. I think everyone's feeling a little bit sad about the state of cinema these days. So it, it you know, I, I noticed that the audience is getting older and older with every year. I'm seeing less and less young people. So. Even though the festival showed many great films and in many ways was one of the best Sydney film festivals I've ever gone to, it did lead us to pretty sobering thoughts about the state of the world, the state of people's mental health and the state of cinema. Um, Returning to just some of the specific examples of this issue within film, I think especially seeing as this is recurring more frequently, we'd be very, it's very important how this is depicted. And I'd like to raise two examples. One is, I won't say which one, but one of the Joaquin Phoenix films, which we did at the festival, had a very similar scene to the film I saw on opening night, Ghost Stories. I feel the Joaquin Phoenix film um, depicted this issue with a great deal. It was very graphic, very visceral, but it depicted it with a great deal more maturity. In the Ghost Stories, it was used as a plot device, an unnecessary one, and had a very poor rounding off to its ending. So I think as we are seeing this increasingly more, I think it's very important, particularly in the films we seek out and then when people are making films, that it is, um, if the issue is explored, is it explored maturely and well. I want to thank everyone for, I guess, we talk a lot of, we have a lot of, have a lot of reverence on this program, but it is good to talk about a serious issue and um, unpack what is a, very significant, and I think increasingly significant issue within cinema. If you are experiencing issues and you do want to speak to someone, we strongly encourage you to do so. And you can always contact Lifeline Australia on 131114. The number is 131114. We'll be back on our podcast talking about some of the extra films we have seen at the Sydney Film Festival. And next week, getting back to regular cinema of all things. Yeah, blockbusters, Incredibles 2, Hereditary, which is a blockbuster, I guess, for cinephiles, but not for the general audience. And other movies. And other movies. So this has been There's Glenn always F- more movies. That's what we've learnt. So this has been Glenn Falconstein, Chris Evans, the Virat Nehru. Enjoy movies. Have a wonderful evening and good night. Enjoy 50 movies. And we're back on the Film Fight Club podcast, getting straight back into everything Sydney Film Festival 2018 and all the films that we have seen and that you might be able to catch in cinemas very very soon. The first film we are talking about... By very, very soon, we mean six to 12 months from now with the way that festival films are... Delayed and delayed and delayed. I know the Cold War that we covered earlier won't be out until Boxing Day. Didn't On Body and Soul take 12 months to come yeah, out? Yeah, it took a reading? year, and yeah. that's the film that won the festival prize. But it's so. on Netflix now, so if you haven't seen it yet, everyone can see it. Oh, really? I think so. I As think is it, The Breadwinner, which screened at the festival. It's, a, it's on Netflix, really? Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. they just delay it? So was On Body and Soul like released on Netflix while it was in cinemas? No, I don't know, but like it, it's, 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 it's in now, which is going to be fantastic. I know that a film that we both saw and recommended recently, which was... Um, was it Marta, some Martina, what was her name, the murderer? Oh, Marlene the murderer. Marlena, yeah, Marlena the murderer had a brief um, screening it for film's sake, and then shortly after that was on Stan and Netflix. So seek that one out if you want to see a good film. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I'm so glad, especially for On Body and Soul, because 
because of the fest, I got to see her previous film as well. Uh, oh, that's My so 20th good. Century. My 20th Century. She, she's a wonderful filmmaker. And I'm so glad. I want to follow her actual filmography now. Yeah, exactly. It's good to ha- that the festival can draw our attention to some of the underseen films of the past. Now, speaking of films that may have been underseen, we caught a couple of pretty out there ones on the last night. We're starting with the films that we saw last at the festival, one of which is a thing I almost switched up my tickets for. I saw the trailer a few months ago, and it looked absolutely crazy and absurd, and I can't believe this film exists. What is it? Is it Climax? It is. Is it? Is it Climax? It is Climax. Anti-Climax. Anti-Climax. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. Look, um... By the way, Chris is an, a huge Gaspar Noé fan. Well, I, I want one, let's, uh, okay, uh, I, I'd like to qualify that. I always appreciate <laughs> his vision, but I, I, and I find his films fun to watch, but they are often too vapid for their own good. Um, Climax is the least packed with ideas of anything he's made, uh, which makes it quite difficult to watch. It opens really, really strongly with a beautiful dance sequence set to a instrumental version of Supernature by Cerrone, which is, you know, great 70s Italo disco. Um, and the whole film is marked by its constant 4-4 beat. It's set in 1996, so that Gaspar Noé can fill the film with 90s techno. And, you know, like, if, if you're into techno in any way, you're going to have a blast watching this. I was sort of bopping along in my seat. Um, and the early film has this loose kind of energy, the early stages. After the dance sequence, we've got um, some really over-the-top extreme sex talk from the characters to introduce who they are. Classic um, Gaspar Noé. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's not even surprising. Go- yeah, it goes on for so long, and it's so ridiculous that you start to find it funny, or at least I did, even instead of it being just repulsive or shocking. My My basic issue with this movie is that it is, I think seriously mischaracterized uh, what an acid trip yes, ought to feel I'm, like. I'm about to get to that. The, the basic... Sorry, which doesn't mean yeah, yeah, that yeah. we're you know, promoting any kind of... Or does it? Definitely not. The answer to Chris's question is definitely not. Okay. It, um, there's more dancing after this. You know, at this point, so far, so good. Because Gaspar Noé has such a great visual imagination. The actual dancing is fantastic, expressive, different kinds of dancing to what we've normally seen in films. Um, and the choreography of the camera to the music and in and around these dances is beautiful to behold. As usual, Gaspar Noé pulls out all the stops with this film visually with his kind of psychedelic acid trip-inspired visuals. There's neon glowing in the darkness, um, wild, veering, spinning, twirling camera moves. Look, I love all that. The problem is the main premise of this film is just that all these dances go crazy and hostile and start killing each other, and it becomes... A, uh, or attacking each other, and it turns into a nightmare. And the device that Gaspar Noé uses in order to set these people locked in this secluded, for some reason, um, in the middle of a blizzard dance <laughs> studio against each other is that they all drink um, some punch sangria that someone spiked with LSD. Um, I feel like the film would be stronger if... Gaspar Noé had maintained the musical dance kind of energy and these people had just gone crazy from dancing for too long. I'd watch that movie. I would queue yeah. up for that film. Because the film seems to be going in some kind of its social commentary or it's the toxicity of these people's attitudes to sex and to each other that causes them to turn against each other. So why not just lead it more in the path of metaphor? But instead, by directly blaming LSD, this movie is kind of like Reefer Madness 2018 
because yeah, I mean, it, it just gives you fodder for the fact that drugs are evil, drugs are bad, yeah, exactly, drugs kind of thing. And look, uh, acid has been known to have you know give people a bad time or send them a bit loopy for a little bit, but the nature of this drug is not to make people homicidal or to just only bring out the worst in people. I think anybody who knows anything about this drug knows that people are more likely going to become a little bit more nicer to each other and a little bit more likely to lend a helping hand than to... Uh, <laughs> that, that's not a great movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah imagine that. Like a one, bunch of once, people... A, once again, this is not inspired by real experience. This right. is purely conjecture. <laughs> a bunch of people drink... Imagine that as a film. A bunch of people will drink the LSD spiked sangria and then they all... You know, decide go help the local park and just local yeah, neighborhood exactly. kids. They, they go outside. <laughs> and they nice. talk about how beautiful it is to watch the snow falling, and they like gently caress each other's cheeks. Father and, Ted comes but, in but, and but, just but, helps but, out. But, yeah, but, I, I don't but, believe like but, twenty but, people take acid, and not a single one of them has a good time. Every single one of them starts writhing around, clawing their hairs out, impugning other people to. Um, to kill themselves. The yeah. only person who has a good time pees on the floor, right? Like, no, everyone completely <laughs> oh, wow. loses their faculties. Also, they just go completely nuts. This is this is not true uh, to any... Is, is this a drug where people have never taken drugs? Yeah, yeah, yeah except yeah, yeah. that Gaspar Noe, I think, is being really hypocritical here because, judging by his filmography and his interviews, I think he knows better than this. Yes, oh, totally. But also, also at the same time, it's weird because, like, if you've ever been to a college, your college party or, or college dorm and you've met your favourite stoner friend, uh, they're the nicest person Ever. I mean, if you've seen Richard Linklater movies, which does have a token stoner friend in almost all his movies, you know that they are the nicest people in the world who have kind of worldly wisdom. You know? <laughs> or at least believe they have worldly yeah, wisdom. Obviously, we are not encouraging the use of any of this material. To be yeah. very, no, no. It's very clear. All we're saying is watch more Richard Linklater movies but to get a better just, idea of what's... Yeah, it's just weird. Like, even when they're not attacking each other, they seem to be just in hell, you know? Like, people, even characters who the film has established in the op- in some of the early talking head scenes actually have experience with this drug, so should be able to handle themselves. And now, basically, just a mass of people writhing around the floor, like, clawing their heads out and uh, and screaming and at random things around them. Really, what Gaspar Noé wants to do, I think, is not depict anything realistically about the acid trip. It's to depict a, a movie about people going into hell. But then the problem with his approach in that regard is that there's a lack of substance to it. There's only so many shots you can watch of, of people. Like there's a lot of substance to this. <laughs> a lot of substances. <laughs> but yeah, there's only so many shots you can watch of people crawling along the ground or tearing their head, their hair out or um, screaming as they threaten each other with knives before it just becomes monotonous. I was really waiting for some kind of human moments in here, even human moments of despair, because other, the, the... This is the whole movie. This is the whole movie. It just oh, goes wow, on okay. and on yeah, yeah. and on. But, so, but uh, is, isn't that uh, partially, and I'm playing devil's advocate, the idea that young people find themselves in this kind of inescapable loop of hell and they try different things to escape it and they, they all descend deeper and deeper into madness? Look, I think that's what he was going for and I think that could work, but I have two suggestions. Yeah, one is... Um, vary the scenario up a bit so that there's more interesting things happening so that, you know, if it's going to be just a, a descent into hell, give us, show variations on this scenario. And the second way I would suggest that he could have made this better is to maintain the dance theme so that the characters are, you know, if it's going to be just staying in this one place, 
have the characters expressing themselves through dance. You know, that because that gives it a, a level of visual interest that the film starts to lack. I will say the sound design's great, the and the scenes where characters drop in and out of this central dance floor where people are still crazily raving as the music gets darker and darker definitely evoke the feeling of a club or a or a festival at five in the morning where you think what are these people doing you're, you're right actually it's interesting because comparatively if you talk about this with nicholas winding refn and his style of shooting you know these kind of choreographed sequences it's really interesting how poles apart they are and yet in mm. some ways cinematically they're quite similar and that's probably the most interesting sort of moments of the film. And yet it then becomes this kind of boring, monotonous... Yeah, it's 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 monotonous, for, to yeah. be sure. And I think this... It could have been really good. Um, it's a very contained film and basically a vehicle for Gaspar Noé's um, camera movements and signature kind of neon style of cinematography. Um, I can recommend it for the visuals and because there's not much else out they like it but i would say a better film trying to capture this descent into madness in a contained location uh was mother so yeah uh, we refer you to you... our criticisms of mother from episode last year <laughs> whoa whoa yeah but uh you know and also very actually quite similar cinematographically so yeah. um yeah climax is I was curious up until you and said it climax. was similar to yeah. mother <laughs> Damn, you, you stole my joke just there you you were you was doing so well there <laughs> so long no um it's look. I mean, there are a few films like it that are just about watching people go mad. So there's definitely something to recommend about it for how unique it is, yeah. but it's lacking in substance and it lowers itself by at the end of the day turning everything back to the the drugs. Drugs did it because drugs are bad just rather than no. rather than existing in the realm of metaphor where it would could have taken on stronger significance in the mind. It actually seems like quite a vapid uh, film. Noah has less on his mind than ever. So that was Climax, the film I caught last night at the closing night of the Sydney Film Festival was a very different film called The Ranger. Speaking of a group of young people descending into hell and madness and it getting worse and worse and worse, this is pretty much that. This was part of the final film in the Schlock Horror series. Every year at the Sydney Film Festival, there is a punk metal crazy slasher gore horror ritual fest this was that uh it is about a group of young punks and they're just punks zero characterization beyond this who um in order to run away from the man escape to of all things a cabin in the woods this is not an ironic film if it's not intelligent it is not a, a takeoff of josh whedon's excellent cabin in the woods they they go straight to a cabin in the woods and then they meet a deranged villain who is basically putty from seinfeld if he was a serial killer um, this hits every single beat of horror that you have seen before. You know who will die, and you know in exactly what order, and it happens in that order. There are a few very good moments. One is where there, a character loses a limb in a bear trap and then has to drive a van at 100 miles an hour, um, blasting punk out, while and absent the a limb he would typically and up to that point had used drive a van you can visualize the scene and that is um the height of schlock horror which is film managed to events um there is another excellent there are a few interesting bits where a figure um before they dispatch members of the crew um blast out park ordinances in a very calm and law legal authority way before um some meeting some very gruesome ends However, this 
Earlier in the festival, we spoke about what keeps you alive. There's a very good scene in this film where a character who is suffering from great disorientation nevertheless has to defend themselves. There's a similar scene in this film, and we see this in many horror films. However, unfortunately, uh, this disorientation goes all too quickly. Uh, There's one jump scare. One. I count one. There's obviously an obligatory walk down to a basement, which is, um, I think, similar to Climax, very extremely anticlimactic. It is a film that, if you are a seasoned horror fan... Even then, it is not one that you necessarily have to seek out. Certainly, there are, I will say for the film, Chloe Levine, who is the main star, is very good. However, she got a especially thankless material to work with, as did a number of the even less remarkable performers. That is The Ranger. The next film we are talking about is Girl. Yes, so this is the final film that I saw when uh, Chris was watching Climax and... uh Wow, this was this was a film to end the fest on. Uh, I, I'm still actually emotionally so overwhelmed trying to encapsulate my feelings about this movie. It's very difficult to talk about it in terms of what the movie actually makes you go through as the audience. Uh, I'll just try to summarize what it's actually about. Uh, it's it's uh, a person uh, who's undergoing physical transformation, being a transgender person, uh, but also trying to become a ballerina uh, in their teenage years. Uh, this may sound like a very sort of on-the-nose and you know over-the-top premise, but actually the way it's handled by debut director Lucas Down and actually also debut performance by Victor Polster, who plays the titular uh, character in this film. Surprising how both uh, director and the main protagonist are debut performance. Uh, pulled this off in a very, very humane and touching uh, drama, which is emotionally wrecking. I mean, by the time you're done with this movie, you're emotionally wrecked. I, I, I was so, so happy that I did not have a movie to watch after this because I was emotionally just done with this. It's it, it's probably one of the most uh, sort of... Uh, if, you, if you know of Dot End Brothers kind of cinema and that style of filmmaking in where something so simple that the film begins with then takes such huge and life-or-death proportions as the movie goes on. This has that kind of feel to it. And I think what this film does is truly depict this kind of very binary world that we live in, and it doesn't understand these sort of non-binary ideas and how simple everyday living for a lot of trans people and what kind of effect that has. So I think this film in that way does get into the inside and psychological aspects of having that kind of trans experience and uh, also just just gut-wrenching. It's, it's, it's emotionally uh, just a small window into that kind of world and it's done very sensitively, very beautifully, but also, yeah, a lot of pain, a lot of bleakness. I wish that I'd seen that instead of Climax. It's, it's, it's definitely uh, one uh, camera deal or a Yeah, the, the best first feature as well as the best film in the Uncertain <laughs> Regards sidebar. It definitely, definitely, definitely deserved it. It's one of the best ones from the Khan lineup that played at SFF and uh, gosh, I would urge you to check it out. Seek it out. I think Vendetta Films, who is a smaller distributor, has the right. So hopefully we'll be seeing that pretty soon. 
Um, so that was Girl. Now we're talking about a very different film, the only animated film I caught, I think maybe some of the others caught during the festival, which Mine was well, last yeah. day, and which was the Japanese feature Mirai. It is about a young boy, and I can relate to this very strongly. You can remember when they were very small, and a little bundle came home, a little sister, and acclimatized into this in your formative years. And this is told with a fantastical element where he meets members of his family, past and present, at later stages in their life as he goes to different surreal realms. And as we alluded to earlier, there is also some wonderful abounding imagery involving trains. Yeah, this film is from Mamoru Hosoda, who I think he was meant to be the actual successor to Miyazaki um, and was the original director of Howl's Moving Castle. But after leaving Studio Ghibli, he's gone on his own and I think is still, um, you know, he's becoming a successor in terms of being a populist and appealing to a lot of people. But with this film especially, is coming into his own with his own directorial style and his own vision that doesn't feel like it's just riffing off the themes and ideas from Studio Ghibli. Um, I, I thought this movie was really, really cute. It's a nice twist on the Christmas Carol type plot structure where he meets various people from his past and future um, who teach him essentially the value of, the you know, enjoying the moments with his family because they're not going to end. No, sorry, because they're not going to last. And how... Um, yeah, how every moment is precious and how much effort it took from various people around him to bring him to this point in his life. Um, so this is making it sound very heavy, but it's made with a great lightness of touch. I think it peaks with the first fantastical sequence, um, or the first prolonged one, where the dog is um, anthropomorphized into oh, yeah, a man, yeah, yeah. yeah, an aristocrat in a in a coat who says that he's the prince of the house and he and the older version of the young girl Mirai have to team up in order to put away a bunch of dolls um, that, without the father realizing that they're there and it's such a great moment of slapstick physical comedy and there's some great directorial touches um, with the exaggerated animation and that the classical anime style um, I think it's a really light, lovely film that I think families are going to really respond to. I think it's a quite simplistic, though still very strong moral fable, which I appreciated. Um, the time or space travel sequences were extremely well rendered and much more creatively than most films I've seen, including in animated features where you have a lot more scope to do something really outlandish and amazing. I did enjoy the sequence Chris alluded to earlier. My favorite, however, was later sequence in the film involving a uh, time travel to an earlier period in Japanese history um, where we got to know a little bit about the fellow's ancestors. I thought this was very touching, very charming. And certainly there was that in many of those stories, it comes up with a straight, uh, not unpredictable, but still incredibly endearing and heartwarming ending, which I thoroughly appreciated. Something I liked about this film is it develops its moral in a organic way through these sequences. And so it's quite well understood at the end without having to lecture the audience in the way of Disney movies these days, where everybody explains to the audience the moral just in case you did, you missed it somehow. Um, I think, yeah, it's it's very nicely rendered visually. Like it's, it's very down to earth feeling film, which makes the fantasy sequences pop out more because as Glenn said, they're very well rendered. Uh, so that was Mirai. The next film we are speaking about is Messampur. 
Yeah, uh, this was an interesting Indian film that I uh, got to catch, which is uh, I actually did an intro and Q and A for it as well. So I got some, I got lucky with uh, having a chat with director and then trying to understand the film twice, which. Uh, it was really helpful because sometimes uh, you do need to understand the film twice to actually understand it. Uh, this is unlike anything that's come out of Indian cinema for a long, long time. It's basically a film about the ethics of filmmaking in some sense. It's interesting. So you have a filmmaker going into the deep kind of trottle lands of Punjab trying to make a film about a pop singer duo that were murdered back in the 80s. Uh, the, the murder remains unsolved to this day. Some say they were killed by separatists. Some say they were killed by rival singers or filmmakers. So you're quite, never quite sure how they were murdered. But actually, this movie is about the descent into madness of climax this, of, of this filmmaker <laughs> essentially trying Definitely to get climax. Yeah, th- trying to get his film made about this duo and how he manipulates these people coming from an outside land and basically ethically just you know crosses all the boundaries trying to get his film made. It's very interesting visual film as well in terms of how the visual camera work and techniques it's shot and also the sound design i would like to point out it's not something which actually i get to see often in indian movies where the sound design is exceptional in the kind of evoking that kind of descent into madness style and the sound design of just you know using a lot of loud blurry noises and trying to disorient the audience into thinking that this is actually what's happening what's real what's not real and that's pretty interesting that was Messampour. The next one we are speaking about is our obligatory annual Danish thriller, which is The Guilty, starring Jacob Sedegren as a emergency response call operator. It is he answers the call one day. It is one day left to some hearing regarding his what has been a demotion from his active duty regarding a thing we don't necessarily know about. We will find out later in the film. However, he receives a call. It sounds like an irreverent call. However, he sued Conan's on that it could very well be an abduction and you Using his what appear to be detective skills plays a role in investigating this and also patiently waiting for responses on the other end of the line. This is a claustrophobic thriller. It takes place entirely within this one station and mostly at his desk. You have to hang off the desk and on his every word. Uh, you'll see more furrowed brow acting in this than in any film you'll ever likely see, including any Tom Hardy film that has been released in the past 10 years. Um, this and a lot of the impact is down to this actor who carries it off with a great deal of aplomb. It does seem strange and counterintuitive to have a film entirely set indoors, and but counter to that, it actually has a very strong naturalistic sheen. There are some excellent methods used to show the passage of time, even though there are no windows here, using very simple, straightforward lighting effects. And given that there are no location or scene cuts, you're very much in and involved in the action. So it is an incredibly involving film, and on balance, very good. The one major criticism I will make is that it is, again, they're obligatory in films like this to have a twist and to go down extremely dark routes. This does. The twist is not something either the script nor the actor nor the producers can carry off. It was almost like we had to insert it. This would have been much stronger. It's a very good premise. And it would be much stronger if they played what they'd established to such great effect and just continued along that path. Um, it all depends on, as in many cases, someone not doing something when they really should have done it. And they tend to explain this is some very hurried dialogue but it doesn't have nearly the impact once this is shown of what was very well laid and very well managed within the first stages of the film. That is The Guilty. It will likely get a cinematic release. The next film we are speaking about is one of the major anticipated films of the festival, which is Burning. This is about a young writer, Jung Su, who feels confused by life, doesn't seem to really know where he's going after he's graduated from college, 
and he falls in love with a girl from his past when he meets up with her again. Um, he retreats to a, his place in the countryside and spends his days and nights thinking about her when she goes away overseas. When she returns, she's accompanied by a young man called Ben, only about six or seven years older than Jung Su, but seems to have everything in his life together. And Damn it, Ben. Yeah, there's. it's really the burning of the title could be about multiple things, but one of those things is the resentment that Jung Su has to Ben. Because, as I said, Ben seems to be in control of everything, especially his emotions. Um, he has a amazing apartment compared to the squalid little um, places that our other characters live in. He seems to have, um, in it's implied through some of the visuals, control over nature itself in the way that Jung Su perceives him. And it turns into a sort of Hitchcockian in some ways, thriller after a disappearance occurs. And it's about the suspicion that Jung Su has towards Ben that he might have been involved in a major crime. I just I just saw it. I just came uh, from this popular band session that happened uh, not too, too long ago. And it's interesting uh, in that sense what... Uh, I, I really did feel the film and how it builds up tension was interesting, but it didn't manage to sustain it in the middle parts. But then the payoff in the end was... A bit simplistic, but also I, I could see that happening. But I th- felt the build-up was fantastic. The way this movie sustains tension between these three major characters, and actually this, it's quite sort of you know focused in that sense. We don't get to see a lot of the people; it's just three people in for a lot of the film. And yet the, the way the drama is sustained between these three characters and what they feel, uh, and the references to literature was interesting as well. So you have you know. The reference to Faulkner, who did his short story *Barn Burning* in 1939, and you have characters reading Faulkner, and uh, Jung Su's favorite writer is Faulkner. So I really appreciated the literature references here because as a and, uh, book nerd, I was pretty happy with that. And carrying on from that, this is inspired by a Haruki Murakami's short story, which is um, and Murakami idolizes Faulkner and also called his short story *Barn Burning*. Um, this is there direct- we go. Yeah, this is directed by Lee Chang Dong, who I think is a really underrated um, Korean filmmaker. The visuals, the visual style is fantastic. I think um, it's very much like a lot of the films we watched in this festival about big widescreen compositions full of emptiness and sort of, uh, you know, so that you feel the loneliness of the characters and it's very, very slow paced. I thought that early on, as Virat said, it, it almost purely through the visual style creates so much mystery and intrigue. Um, around the middle of the narrative where it becomes about following someone around like Vertigo, which is why I alluded to Hitchcock, it I thought I was interested at first, but it started to lose me a little bit. Um, and I didn't like so much the very final scene in Resolution, but I think the slow burn of it does pay off and the last third of the film I found really mysterious and beautiful. I actually think there was a perfect point for this film to end on, but unfortunately it has to go on for another 10 or so minutes to give the audience more resolution, and I think it would have been better if it had been left to mystery, because one of the major film themes of this film is the mystery of life and how our main character surrenders to it. So I think the, if the film had focused more in on that, it could have been stronger. But nonetheless, I think it's a really great thriller that as long as people are prepared for a more unconventional approach than and films would regularly go in with this kind of subject matter that they'll find a lot to enjoy in. And the last one we were speaking about in the final few moments is The Wild Pear Tree. 
Yes, The Wild Patri is the new film by New Rebuild Chairan, and it's, it's my favorite film of the festival, actually. Uh, it's also about a writer, uh, funnily enough, and a very, very... Dis- Writers writing about writing. Very despicable young writer, which I should point out, uh, who comes back to his hometown and realizes that he doesn't like anyone or anybody. And it is interesting in the sense that, let's compare Panahi with Chelan. I think uh, they're both very much concerned with their own social commentary of the towns that they inhabit. And it's really interesting how... Uh, in Chilean film, especially while Petri, there are these long-winded discussions. There's a 40-minute discussion about religion and the nuances of... Yeah, this film goes 188 minutes, yeah. by the way. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. But also, at the same time, I could, I, I, I could really sit through... It's, it's a very novelistic style of Chilean that has. He really actually, I think, tries to bring alive 20th century kind of epic novels on screen. It's this novelistic and chapter-by-chapter style of filmmaking that I really do enjoy. And I do feel that all these people have extended discussions about meaning of life, about what things mean, and I'm, I'm a sucker for that, for the cinema. Okay, if it comes to Panahi and Ceylon, I'm always going to take Ceylon. Sorry, I'm always going to take <laughs> Panahi over Ceylon. Oops. <laughs> yeah, oops indeed. Um, I'm always going to take Panahi over Ceylon because I find Panahi's pessimism in his worldview... Um, especially with this kind of presentation on screen, really difficult to You mean you accept. mean Chelan's uh, pessimism, right? Yeah, because the film um, was maybe not the best one to catch as the fifth film of the day um, while I was extremely tired on four hours of sleep because it's so dense with dialogue. Um, I think I did a pretty good job, but still I've, there, are, there were subtleties to this that I'm sure I missed. Um, I would like to see the film again, even though I doubt I'm going to be a big fan of it. But I really do appreciate that Shaylan injected some humor into the proceedings because three hours of of dour, um, dour yeah. uh, misanthropy is a lot to take in. Yeah, it, this is his actually, you know, if you've seen his previous films like Once Upon a Time in Anatolia or Winter Sleep, this is his funniest film, which I was really surprised yeah. by how funny this movie it is. is. It's it actually has, hilarious at times. It, I'll give it, it has my favorite throwaway shot, which is this one shot of oh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the writer book jacket, you know, photo where he's just looking at in distance, very candid writer shot. It's just it's a just it, subtle comedy com- commentary you know, and, on and, the pretentiousness and, and, of writers. Yeah, and I, and I just laughed out loud. Yeah, I, I, think, I, I can get that, yeah. You know, and, you and, and I think in, in the state yep. theater, I think I was the lo- one laughing out so loudly that I think people just turn around and like, is he mad? Is he okay? But, you Look, know, I just saw myself in that shot There are two s- seconds. There are some really beautiful scenes visually, but I wish there were more of them. I think... Chelan used to be really interested in visual poetry, and you see that in, I think, the the best sequence of the film early on, which is a meeting Sinan the writer has with a past lover of oh his under God, a tree. Oh, my God, that's fantastic. Yeah, but throughout, most of the film is shot in a fairly conventional shot-reverse-shot way, and it's more about the avalanche of dialogue coming at you. My problem is, one, I, I find this a little bit uncinematic to hold attention for three hours. Two, I feel like these conversations are interesting of their own but when there's so many of them it becomes a little bit much and I think they don't really further our understanding of Sinan that much I think I got what I understood of him about an hour into the film is pretty similar to what I understood about him by three hours so as always with Chelan's films I find them a little bit indulgent but um, you know this maybe would have worked better as a mini series where we have time to think about the conversations we've just watched instead of having to take in all of them in one sitting. Um, I find his films a, a bit monotonous, in some ways a little bit dead. There's not much emotional variation, and it's so, I guess, literary in the way that the dialogue is written with few moments of transcendence, and it's all designed to impart a fairly bleak worldview 
Not only that, but his films to me seem constructed to be major statements of something profound. And I don't find, I find it's interesting enough and, but I don't really feel the profundity in his films. So it's a hard watch and it's a, um, I'll give it another spin when I'm more ready to take on something of this magnitude. And I hope I'm able to enjoy it as much as Virat did. As a whole, I still enjoyed it though, because these conversations are great and there are some sequences that are fantastic. I'm just amazed how he continuously tries to make movies that are more like novels, and he's just trying to make them into cinematic statements, which I find to be a futile exercise, but he still tries to do it over and over again. Mm. So there's some kind of tragic nobility in that, I guess. So that, uh, in terms of giant undertakings that we have to take some time to rest before doing again, that was the our 2018 Sydney Film Festival coverage. Can I just say that despite some of the complaints that you'll, you'll hear, as always, on Film Fight Club, it's actually been a fantastic festival. I think the consistency of quality in the films that we saw has, for me, been higher than any other Sydney Film Festival I've attended. I mean, it's a testament to the fact that we remembered a lot of the movies we saw and we were able to actually discuss them quite in depth. We haven't even together. We haven't even touched on Ex Libris, which was which I think Virat somehow managed to get a ticket yes, for. There was speaking one, of heroic undertakings, one one librarian uh, movie watcher who swapped out at the last minute, and thank thank you whoever you are who swapped out because all three sessions were sold out. And I'm like, okay, I want to see this, but I can't see this. But there's one person, one librarian who had to go somewhere. Was it good? Oh my god, it's fantastic. Uh, Frederick Weiss. This is the three hour library. Three movie. and a half, actually. Three and wow. a half, almost four hours. Uh, and I've spent a lot of the library, but you know, I'm not watching. No, but the thing with Frederick Weissman is he's able to actually make this, a bit like Chilan, make these grand statements about seemingly mundane things, but he does it in a much more warm fashion. So his role is not bleak. So he's actually talking about the positive things in life. And the way you see the New York Public Library, you actually see this as a cultural artifact that actually is essential to a lot of people and a lot of communities. Mm. So in Weissman, what you see is an aspect of community coming together. And often, I think, in the, even in his last movie, In Jackson Heights, you could see that. You could see that aspect of warm community brotherhood that comes together. And you see that in Ex Libris, of all the things, which is just so weird that this is this kind of monolithic library, which is actually a living, breathing thing. Hopefully, the festival has brought our community closer together. I think that's that one of the great things about the festival, as we always say, is the social aspect of it. Yeah, we all I, met the through is, the festival. We all, so. met, we all met through the festival. I've met so many friends at the festival. Every year there is a recurring group of people uh, from around the country, film fans, critics, whomever, who come in and spend time at the harbour and are there over the weekends. Um, I oh, and it's and it's and you know you also see people throughout the year where you wouldn't necessarily see them, and you can go see a session with them. It is a fun vibe, but you can certainly do that with many festivals. We'll be covering other festivals throughout the year. In terms of other coverage, the uh, interviews will be up on the Celluloid Dreams page, and it's been quite a fun. It's been yeah, quite a few weeks of. Just festival, festival, right between the state and Eddie yeah. Newtown and everything. It's an endurance test. I've actually felt a bit of a crash today because you're just constantly taking on, you know, engaging yourself intellectually and emotionally with film after film after film. And then when it's gone, you have to go back to everyday living, the world <laughs> that isn't made up of condensed pictures of the of the peak of emotion as films. And, 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 you tag a Jurassic World. <laughs> yeah, and, and also Man, like, what a crash. And just trying to get, you know, proper lunch and proper food because, you know, you don't, you're not trying to grab a quick bite. You're trying to get hey, proper the lunch the hub were great. They man. were actually pretty good. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do agree. And six dollars, fantastic. Yeah, and um, I guess I would like to ask everyone, what was your favorite film of the festival? Um, I would say for me, it was a split between Leave No Trace and You Were Never Really Here. 
if there would be like i said earlier on uh, a child between panahi and chalana would uh, watch that but yeah a mix between flip between wild by tree and three faces i'm going to say definitely three faces but uh, almost everything I saw was good. Even things like films I complained a lot about, like Wild Petri, I thought were definitely good. Yeah, I, I, I saw a friend of mine tonight. I didn't realize he was at the festival. He saw one film. Can you guess what it was? Upgrade. No? Ex Libris? Th- think, think, you're thinking too high. You're thinking too great. You're thinking of all the great films. Disobedience? Tower Bright Day. Tower Bright Day. <laughs> Did he like it? No, he hated it. So and he uh, swore off the Sydney Film Festival forever. Yeah, if, if you only saw one film and it was something like Tower Bright Day, please know there are other great films, whether it be traveling around the I country mean, or it's, it's the best best reason to get a flexi pass so you can get you know make one. So you can see and... Tower Bright Day <laughs> ten times. Yes, oh. exactly. Or you can you can see both sessions with five people. <laughs> Yeah, I might be doing an intro for that one or some other one. I don't know. So if it's a good movie. Is he, no, no, which one? I don't know. Whichever one. I don't know. Oh, it, so Next any year. movie might have a right intro. So <laughs> yeah. book as many sessions as possible <laughs> in the off chance that he'll be there. Yeah, but those will be good movies, like I said. You know, they might not be bad ones. And I want to give a special just thank you shout out to Nash who came on and who literally spends probably about 11 months and two weeks every year planning this festival. He has a bit of a break now. And they've yeah. put together a great... They have. We, we talked a lot about our criticisms, but they've put together a phenomenal program for which we were so grateful to spend 12 days, and gladly so, yeah. running between every great venue in Sydney. I was hoping to catch him in the last couple of days of the festival to tell him what a good job he did and how fantastic the festival was this year, but I didn't get a chance to. So in case you're listening, Nashen, I, I'm sincere in saying that yeah. this is the most I've enjoyed the program of films at the festival. It's it's superb, and if they can keep up this standard of quality, I'll continue to subject myself to the madness year after year. And I'll say that to Richard yeah. Kupius too, the persons who program the different strands, which I always thoroughly enjoy and appreciate. We heart you all. We heart you. And we have to say, because they always go unsung, there are dozens, hundreds of volunteers every year who give their yeah, time and off, cop a lot of flack sometimes in the rain, directing people in long crowds and, and you know... Good on you guys, and you, it couldn't happen without you. We haven't even spoken on the show about the retrospective of Aki Kurosaki films, which I actually really enjoyed. I've only se- I'd only seen a few of his films previously, and um, this drew my attention to a lot of great work. Like I know that for me and Virat, Ariel was one of the highlights of the festival. Yeah, it, it was so funny, and I, I'm, because maybe we saw it after Elephant Sitting Still, so it also had an increasing sort of tonality in terms of breath of fresh air. We needed that, you know. It was a yeah. perfect sort of decomposition buster after. Uh, that kind of sitting still for four hours. And it was also nice that the retrospective was about a maybe underappreciated filmmaker or someone a bit off the beaten track instead of making, you know, like in previous years, a retrospective of people in the canon like Martin Scorsese or Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, it's it's been fantastic. And, And also, I don't know what we'd do without it. I mean, these 12 days, I look forward to them every year. Yep. And it's, it's, it's necessary. It's necessary for my survival. It's necessary for the survival of a cinema culture in Sydney, let me tell you that. For cinephilia, it is just such a pleasure. And yeah. it, it is a pleasure to go out oh, and my God. see you people. You didn't just say cinephilia like, as a word. It oh, is. God. It is a word. And you go out and you can see people. Yes, they love the same things we do. And what do we, what do, we do now? I just remember the panel from last year, which is like, what is cinephilia with Jason DeRosso moderated? There was a good one this year. <laughs> Actually, the, the, the talks, the talks <laughs> there was also one about South African human rights, which I quite liked. Um, but yeah, like, what, do we, what do we do now? Yeah, Countdown to myth? Yeah, yeah. We, we, I think <laughs> so. There's Nicolas, C- Nicolas Cage marathon. Oh, the oh, cage-a-thon. Wow. Yes, the, cage-a-thon. the 12 and a half hour cage-a-thon with hopefully Mandy and the vampire film and my favorite, The Rock. And uh, all the crazy schlocky films, uh, Magic Man, underrated. Is, the, the Rock is your favorite 
He, 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 okay, there's a scene of the. I'm sorry, there's, what? There's a scene of the rock where he says, you know, the Elton John song Rocket Man, and he shoots the guy out a window with a rocket. You cannot beat this, sir. Even cast the Troy <laughs> in Face Off, even Ca- uh, Cabron, what is it, Cabron Poe in Con Air. You okay. cannot beat Stanley Goodspeed in The Rock. Okay, what I'm getting is the vibe is the fact that if it has an Elton John song, it's your favorite movie. Almost Famous was my favorite film of 2000. <laughs> what I'm getting a vibe of is that the festival has cleared out all of our pretensions of being highbrow appreciators of the finer things in cinema, and it's back to blockbusters, baby. Because uh, we're doing Hereditary next week and Jurassic uh, Fallen Kingdom. Jurassic World, maybe. Uh, definitely Incredibles 2. I don't know. I might abstain from the Jurassic World discussion, guys. I don't what? know if I can do it. I don't know if uh, I can do it. Watch it for the gold bloom. Uh, oh, your gold bloom's in this. All right, so we will be back next week talking more about films that aren't the film festival but we will be coming back with festivals we'll be coming back with festival films probably pretty soon after with disobedience and uh foxtrot both movies we missed at the festival because they're now playing in cinemas i'm really looking forward to glenn's opinion on disobedience so we can disobey together I'm looking forward to seeing that too. I had tickets, but I actually just couldn't make that session. But uh, it's a film which I think I might just say I will relate you'd, to probably more really, than others. You'd really like it. You'd really like it. I'm looking forward to it. If you don't, then you can hate me. Or, 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 at, or, or at me on Twitter. We, we, just, we can just fight about it. If you hate someone, don't at them on Twitter. That's not the correct response. There's enough hate, <laughs> there's enough hate on the internet, people. This is me, Glenn Falkenstein. Chris Evans of Ratneru. Thank you for joining us for the Film Festival coverage. Uh, you can check out our stuff on the, obviously on the podcast and on the Celluloid Dreams page. We will see and you to next week. And to SCR.com. We'll see you next week. Have a wonderful night. Enjoy movies. <laughs>